Stay hungry, stay foolish. This episode is about getting to grips with how to actually change your behavior so you stay curious a little bit longer. It sounds like it should be easy, but it's not. You have to tame your advice monster. That part of you that jumps in to offer ideas, opinions, suggestions, and advice. And it's taming your advice monster that's at the heart of today's book. We welcome author of The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Welcome to the show. Happy to be Hayden. I'm admiring your books behind you. I'm happy to be one of the books in conversation with you. This is going to be great. Two of the books, man. I've, I've read The Coaching Habit as well, but I, I found The Advice Trap builds upon that work, and we'll talk about that during the, the day today. In fact, your previous book, The Coaching Habit, has been an enormous success, and you give a summary of that book as context to this one. It would be great if you would do that. Sure. So I've been involved in the world of coaching for, for I don't know, 20 years or something, and kind of informally probably a bit before that as well. And I was always really frustrated by this idea that coaching, which can be such a powerful technology of change, felt a bit exclusive and a bit privileged. You know, it's really helpful if you're a kind of white, middle-aged, middle-class, bit wealthy, uh, you kind of get access to whatever this coaching thing is. And all the rest of us, normal people, and you know, I'm part of the privileged group for sure, but lots of other people don't get access to that. And that shows up in a different way in the context of work, because in lots of places, coaching and being more coach-like can be a really powerful leadership tool, leadership strategy, leadership behavior. And in any organization, you tend to have a few people who are kind of like all gung-ho on coaching. They love it. They've done training. They've, they've just, they're completely about the coaching. Then there's everybody else going, I don't know what's wrong with these HR people. They're, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're nuts. I'm normal. I'm not a coach. I just want to get on with running a team, running good projects, having an impact, getting home and seeing my, my family at night, having a good life. And the coaching habit is about bridging that. It's like, how do I unweird coaching? So it's about trying to get to, as somebody once said, simplicity on the other side of complexity. So I was, okay, what are the, what's essential about coaching? Well, essential about coaching is, first of all, a behavior change. So let's define behavior change, which is like how I define coaching, which is, can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Because most of us are advice giving maniacs. And then I'm like, okay, so if that's the behavior change, how do we do that? Well, Chapter one of the coaching habit, I talk about what a habit is, and I give them the new habit formula. I build on the work of people like Charles Duhigg and Leo Babauta, um, James Clear, Atomic Habits hadn't come out yet, but you know he, he does the same. Um, Near Isle, folks like that. Um, and then the rest of the book is like, here are seven good questions, just seven. If you have these seven good questions and you get to use them and incorporate them into your everyday life, you will stay curious a little bit longer. You will change the relationships you have. You will bring more focus to the work you do. You'll have people who feel more competent and more confident and more engaged and more autonomous and more self-sufficient. And you will work less hard and have more impact. So you get to go home a bit earlier as well. That's what that book is all about. And that's part of why it's taken off because people are like, 
this makes my life better. I like it. It's so useful in so many aspects of life. And we'll talk about it in life today, but also in an innovation context, because curiosity is the driver of innovation. It's the starting point. And you say here, no matter our good intentions, we love to give advice. We love it. As soon as someone starts talking, our plan to be curious goes out the door and what you call the advice monster looms out of our subconscious, rubbing its hand together and saying, I'm about to add some value to this conversation and then ruins it. You do, you do it better than I do. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you make the leap to creativity and innovation because my first job when I finally left university was in the world of innovation and creativity. I joined a small little agency and it was a little bit before the innovation became a bit of a buzzword. So they were a bit cutting edge at the time. And that we'd be hired by big companies to invent new products and new services for them. So they're, you know, the guys who founded it were ex-Unilever people. So they're like, we got, I spent first two years of my life trying to invent new formats of soap powder. Uh, it was before capsules had been invented. And that ability to stay curious, ask questions as a way of opening up new possibilities was essential as part of that world of innovation and creativity. But actually, it's just, it's, if innovation is unlocking the potential of products and services, coaching is about unlocking the potential of human beings, which is actually far more interesting than inventing a new type of soap powder. Then you start the book by telling us why our advice does not work. You say, Number one, and again, this is really important for innovation, we're often solving the wrong problem. And then number two, you're proposing a mediocre solution. And here you talk about self-serving bias and then what you call first idea-itis. Ah, yeah, exactly. Well, as an example of that, I mean, going back to this agency, I remember uh, um, a company approaching us and going, we need a new dessert that is better than the Sarah Lee double chocolate layer cake. Now, I don't know what the state of things are now, but in the 90s, the Sarah Lee double layer chocolate cake was the the OG of frozen desserts. I mean, it was, it just, everybody loved it. It was, you know, it didn't matter if you were 88 or 18 or eight, you loved the double layer chocolate cake because it was just appealed to everybody. But what was interesting about this agency coming with that request is that they immediately framed the challenge in a way that limited it and kind of prescribed what the possibilities were. So you're right. I think there are three ways your advice goes. Uh, not your advice. The three ways what in terms of leaping in too quickly with advice takes the conversation off the track. Number one, just as you said, the first challenge that gets laid out is almost never the real challenge. It's their first guess. It's their best go at a brief. It's their best. It's, it's just what's annoying them at the moment. Often it's the, the, the solution disguised as a question, like can you invent a new double-layer chocolate cake is actually the solution designed, design, you know, re-articulated as the problem. So if you... If you as the person listening to this conversation with Aiden and me think to yourself, the way I could most add value in my life and in my work is to be the person who figures out what the real problem is, it changes everything. You will become seen as a strategic player, an influencer, 
everything becomes more efficient because you don't have a whole bunch of people working on the wrong stuff. But even if, even if just for the sake of argument, you've defined the right challenge, like you're really crisp and clear and you've nailed it and it's there, it's like a shining thing that needs to be sorted out. Then the second challenge with your advice is your, your advice just isn't as good as you think it is. Just as you were saying, Aiden, which is like you've got all these biases, all these self-referencing ways of making yourself feel better about your own wisdom. But the truth is your, your, your ideas are ill-informed. You don't fully understand the problem. You've got your own bias around this worked for me back in 1943, so it should work for you now. Um, you, your, your brain is wired to make you feel that you're smarter and better than you are. And honestly, the only stuff that you really know for sure that's actually true, I could just Google a whole lot faster than you can actually explain it to me. But look, let's just say, for the sake of it, you not only have you got the, the right problem and you're solving the right problem, but you've got a crackerjack solution. I mean, it's just gangbustersly good. You're like, this, oh, this is gold dust. This is the pearls of wisdom. There's your third challenge, which is what's the right leadership act in this moment? Because you, and, and you can go either way on this, because there may be a time where you're like, the, the right leadership act is for me to tell them what to do. But there, there are, there's a price that gets paid if you're the person who tells them what to do. You're training them that you're the person who tells them what to do. You're becoming the bottleneck to your own system. You're disempowering the people around you. Now, some, there are advantages, speed, accuracy. If, you, if you're really sure you've really got the really the best answer and you know, don't be too confident, but speed and accuracy and, and you know, the, the sword that cuts the Gordian knot, your solution might be all of that. But it's really worth, worth asking yourself, is like, even if I have the right answer, what if I stay curious just a little bit longer? I'm not, I'm not saying that I can't give them the answer, but what if I don't give them the answer right away? What if I give myself five minutes of helping them figure out the answer before I tell them the answer? And you'll be amazed at how far they get without you or kind of with you coaching. B, you'll be amazed at the ideas that they have, some of which, honestly, likely to be better than yours. And thirdly, you'll be able to weigh up whether it's more useful for them to go with an idea that might not be quite as brilliant as yours, but one that they generated themselves, that they have ownership and engagement and buy into, or whether you try and force your idea onto them, which always has the risk of um, organ rejection. You know, the body going, yeah, that, I get it. I get why I should like this idea. I don't like this idea. We're not going to do it. That resonated with me, that mindset as a parent, but also in the workplace. And I'm, I'm going to quote what you said here. You said it beautifully in the book. If someone is constantly on the receiving end of advice with no option to share their own ideas, their autonomy and mastery will certainly decline and most likely their purpose too. Being told what to do, even with the best intentions, signal that the advice receiver is not really here for their ability to think, only for their ability to implement someone else's ideas. I thought you articulated that absolutely brilliant because you say it prevents teams from being more than just the sum of the parts. Right. I mean, the, the autonomy, mastery, and purpose draws on Dan Pink's work from Drive. Um, and if people haven't read that yet, they probably should because it's a wonderful encapsulation of 
um, you know, external motivation, not that great at actually motivating people. Internal motivation is the engine that keeps keeps revving. So, and how do you get internally motivated? You give people autonomy, you give them the opportunity for mastery, you help them connect to purpose. And being more coach-like is one of the ways you operationalize people like Dan Pink's book. Um, but yeah, you're like, if you, if I mean, I'm not a parent, so I'm, I'm not able to give anybody any advice on that. I'm really happily child-free, so I'm delighted that other people like Aiden are raising people. Um, but it does strike me as an uncle, um, you know, part of, part of what you're trying to do is just get the best of your kids out into the world. You know, make them resilient, make them confident, make them open, make them both humble and generous. And, uh, you know, if they can be curious, curiosity is a superpower that kind of leads to so many of those things. But in the work context, equally, Aiden, you're like, you want your, you want your team to be more than the sum of its parts. You want people to say, I'm bringing all I got to contribute. Maybe not all you got. But it's like um, I'm bringing some of the best of who I am to contribute to this team. Um, and by coaching you, what you're actually doing, this is, the, this, is the, this is the secretly subversive power of coaching, is you're disrupting power structures. Because the I'll tell you what to do is a hierarchical expression of power. Look, I'm the boss. Look, look at my gray hair. Look, look at look at my <laughs> look at my white maleness here. I'm like I'm clearly superior to you. Allow me to tell you what to do. Coaching says, allow me to offer the spotlight to you. Allow me to invite you to step in and take ownership and control and all of that. And it disrupts hierarchy. It it disrupts the usual power structures. And that's at its heart. What gets me super excited about this? This is so core to innovation. And you talk about this and, and you have such deep experience in change programmings, the ones that were lipstick on a pig and then the real ones as well that were actually meant to change organizations. But you say regarding change programs, the advice giving habit, ARG for short, A-G-H, generates waste, waste, leeches innovation and reduces the capacity to scale for success. Advice giving entrenches the status quo of hierarchy and process, keeping your organization st uh, stuck. I'd love if you'd share hard versus easy change. Sure. You know, it's a concept that really works at a personal level, but I think it scales up to a, a team and a corporate organizational level as well. So here's the basic pattern for both of those. And I'll explain them both at an individual level first. Easy change is when you decide, okay, you need to get better at something or you need to change something. And you start and you learn a bit and you try out a bit and you learn a bit and you try out a bit and you basically figure it out and you rise to the level of mastery that is necessary for the situation. So people master easy change all the time. We have a pandemic and we need to set up working from home. So you go up and you go, okay, I'm going to buy a camera and I've got to get a microphone and I've got lighting and I've got a screen and I've got a sound baffle and I've got a bunch of ways that I can turn this place into a way that allows me to have conversations at home, but in a way that looks like I'm not at home. And, 
you know, other people are like, I've got ways of managing my kids and work and you know, you figure it out. Or maybe you get a new phone. So you're like, okay, so I've got to figure out where the apps are on this and new apps and a different operating system. All that sort of stuff. You're kind of like, you figured it out. Hard change, which people will be familiar with too, is it starts the same, but rapidly wanders into the swamp of despair. And you start off and you're like, okay, I need to, I want, I want this to happen. And so you, you read books and watch podcasts and listen to TED Talks and go on courses. And for some reason, even though you're accumulating knowledge, you can't figure out actually how to get going on anything. You can't get traction. You're like, how do I crack this so that I can do it? And if you've had New Year's resolutions that you've repeated for the last five years in a row, you've had performance appraisals where you're like, hey, Aiden, you know, last year we said it'd be good if you learn how to lead a team better. You still kind of suck at learning, leading a team. <laughs> What's that about? And, and Aiden's like, exactly. What is that about? <laughs> because I'm actually committed to try and figuring that out, and I can't. Here's the challenge. Uh, or here's the metaphor that I think could be helpful for people. I think easy change is a little bit like downloading an app onto your phone. You're like, I need a little bit extra stuff. So it's additive to what's already there. It's it's kind of you plus. You know, you're like polishing up present you and making it slightly better, refining it a little bit. I think a hard change is when you you go, you know, an app's not going to do it. It's actually an upgrade to the operating system. So if easy change is present you, hard change is future you. You know, if easy change is an app, hard change is a new operating system. If easy change is you plus, hard change is you 2.0. And where change so often goes wrong, and I think I really do believe that this is one of the reasons where I, innovation is so difficult, is that... Um, we apply easy change solutions to hard change issues. You know, this work comes from um, a Harvard academic called Ron Heifetz, or at least partially draws on, on Ron Heifetz's stuff. He calls it a, a technical change versus adaptive change, um, which is probably smarter and deeper than the way I'm explaining it, but less accessible. So I'm like easy change, hard change. And, um, I think part of what we've got to figure out with um, hard change, what doesn't work is more content, <laughs> learning more stuff. Because what you're trying to do is you're applying an easy change hammer to try and crack a hard change nut. It doesn't work. At the heart of hard change is you've got to understand what's at risk. In fact, what needs to be sacrificed uh, in this kind of present you so that you can leave that behind and go to future you. Like, I know, Aiden, you've got a book coming out shortly. And part of that metaphor is about the, the pain and glory of transformation and how it ends by going, at a certain point, you've got to say, right, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving my old self behind and the new self is, is moving into the future. That's that's at the heart of hard change, which is like, what do, you, what do you leave behind? What do you say no to so that you can say yes to this new sense of purpose and possibilities? 
And I do think that that works definitely at a personal level. It works at a, at a corporate, you know, organizational level as well. People go, we want blue ocean strategy, but they're like, but let's not leave the red ocean because, you know, we understand this ocean. I love how you put it in the, in the book, Michael. I loved how you said this. You said hard change involves saying no to some of what's worked for you, for your present you. Saying no now enables you to say yes to the promises of future rewards. You're not you're playing for a longer term, harder, bigger game with a constant temptation to opt out for a short term win. You're potentially changing your beliefs and values, roles and relationships and how you show up in the world. It's uncomfortable and it's difficult, but it's also life changing. I absolutely love how you put that because it, it nails both change, but also innovation, because sometimes we have to let go of business models that no longer service, but equally as individuals, we leave to let go of mental models that no longer service. Yeah. But you build on this, Michael, and you talk about the Karpman drama triangle. I thought this was really useful. This comes from your work in the coaching habit, your previous book. The drama triangle has its roots in something called transactional analysis. And it, TA uh, was a therapeutic model from I think the 70s. Um, and even if you've never heard of TA, which most people haven't, you've, you've kind of heard the detritus of its model. Because when you, people talk about parent-child relationships or adult-to-adult -adult relationships, that is language from uh, the transactional analysis. And it's one of those models that is interesting but doesn't translate at all really to everyday life because it's like, wait, parent-child relationship, isn't that a good thing? Or is it a bad thing? Is it, has it different from an adult-to-adult -adult relationship? It all gets a bit too complicated if you remove it from the slightly rarefied air of the, thera the therapeutic conversation. One of the students of the founder of transactional analysis is a guy called Dr. Stephen Cartman, and he translated it into and simplified it into the sink of the drama triangle. And I'm, I love simplicity on the other side of complexity, and I feel that that's what Cartman does with the, with the drama triangle. So he says, look, three roles happen when things get dysfunctional, and they always get dysfunctional. <laughs> so this, is, this explains your relationships with your kids, with your spouse, with your boss, with your organization, with life. The drama triangle is a lens that can explain this. So the three roles – and there are pros and cons to each of the roles. Number one, the, the first role is that of the victim. So the victim is kind of whiny, complainy, it's so unfair, life is against me, they did this, they did that. You know, the to use another therapeutic kind of language, it's like, I'm not okay, they're okay. That's the kind of the victim thing. It's so hard. Now, of course, the advantage of playing the victim role is you get to be powerless you get to opt out, you get to blame everybody else, you get to complain, you get to whine, you don't get to take responsibility for anything. But the price you pay is a heavy one, which is like you are, you're stuck being disempowered, being sad, being frustrated, being unable to, to move, feeling like you're just flotsam and jetsam in the river of other people's life. So there's the, the victim. The second role is the um, persecutor. So you know the, what a persecutor looks like and sounds like. They're kind of loud, shouty, blamey, finger-waggly. You know, they're, they're kind of like, I'm okay, but you all suck. 
So the most obvious is the kind of shouty bully person in the um, in the in the workplace. But actually, it can be far more subtle than that. You know, everything like the um, the the micromanager is a classic example of a persecutor. Now there are advantages to playing that short term advantages. You know, you get to feel superior. You get to shout. You get to tell people they're crap. You get to maintain control, you get to take credit when things work and blame others when they don't. Um, but there's a price you pay for being the persecutor, you and all those around you, which is like you're lonely, you're isolated. You know, when the whip starts cracking, people stop working. Um, you're also overwhelmed because you don't actually trust anybody to do a good job, so you end up having to check and do everybody else's work for them. The third role is the rescuer role. And even though that title, the rescuer, sounds slightly better than persecutor and victim, it's equally as screwed up and as dysfunctional as those first two roles. The rescuer looks like the person who jumps in and goes, don't worry, don't fight, I'll solve it, I'll take it on, give it to me, let me fix this, uh, it's fine. Um, and, of course, the advantage of that is you feel like you're noble, you feel like you're morally superior, you feel like you're a burning martyr, you get to be kind of nobly sacrificed on the, the glory of your own intentions. Um, the, you also get to keep your fingers in all sorts of other people's business and other people's pies, so there's that advantage as well. But the disadvantage is it's exhausting, it's frustrating, you spend your life doing other people's stuff for them rather than your own work. Um, and profoundly, you maintain the drama triangle. The, the rescuer role is a really key part of what keeps the drama triangle alive and dysfunctional. We, we spend all of our life going in and out of drama triangles with various people. You're not fundamentally any one of these three roles, but you do play those roles occasionally in different circumstances, different contexts. Um, you probably have a favorite. Your favorite or the one that you recognize most clearly in your life is you as a rescuer because 90% of people self-identify as rescuers. I always say that self-identifying as a rescuer is the act of a victim, which makes people's brains blow up. But... Part of what coaching can be so profoundly helpful with is it is a way of pulling yourself out of the drama triangle. Because when you're in the drama triangle, you are in a reactive, responsive mode. Something happens and you react, and that, that's what's you in the drama triangle. When you're staying curious, you're pulling out and you're not being as reactive, and that actually allows you to allow your best self to come forward because you're not always in the drama triangle. You're not always playing those roles. And we all want more of your best self, not you stuck in the drama triangle. Yeah, beautifully articulated, man. It's, it's uh, lovely to hear it that way. But in the context of your work, it's about becoming our best selves and being aware of these things. And the next thing you tell us, even when we become aware of those things, the advice monster raises its its ugly head again and it's like in the background. And you t you suggest next we play dress up. We're not going to do that live on camera here. But there's three Come personas. On, I've got my whole, <laughs> I've got my out, I've got three outfits lined up here with the three different advice monsters. Okay, man. <laughs> I'd love if you'd if you'd put on your tell it and your save it and your control it outfits. Well, that's right. You know. 
the reason I part of the the drive to write the advice trap was the failure of the coaching habit. Now, the coaching habit's been successful in a bunch of different metrics, but you know, with nearly a million copies sold, I can't claim that I've changed the lives of a million people. I've changed the lives of some of those people, but not all of them, because you know, it's a classic bell curve. There's a some people at one end who are like, this book is amazing and I'm using the questions and it's changed the way I lead forever, just as he promises in the subtitle. I'm like, you guys are awesome. Thank you. And then there's some people at the other end of the bell curve who are like, this book sucks <laughs> and I'm not at all interested <laughs> and it's stupid. And you just have to go and read my one-star reviews on Amazon to see all the people <laughs> who, who hate the book because there's some of them. Um, my favorite is Sonny Davis who goes, this is the worst book ever written. And I'm like, that's that's probably harsh. I mean, I can show you some books that I'm sure are worse than this, including the rip-off summary of The Coaching Habit, which has to be a worse version than The Coaching Habit itself. But anyway. Is it really? Are they rip-offs, those books you see, the summaries? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're oh, like, they're, they're effectively taking my intellectual property and uh, trying to get people to buy, pay them for it. And, and they sell them. They sell, I can't, I've seen those books and I'm like, how do they work? Yeah, I... They, 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 uh, they're, yeah, they're people ripping you off, basically. Um, but it's the people in the middle who are like, I want to be more coach-like. I want to be curious. I want to ask better questions. I want to stay out of the drama triangle. And even though they've read the book, maybe done some training, it's not enough to shift their behavior. So what's going on with that? And it comes down to this understanding of easy change and hard change. For some people... Being more coach-like is easy change. It's like downloading the app on the phone. It's additive to who they already are. Some people are like, for me to be more coach-like, additive won't work. I need transformative. And that's where you realize the, the deeper work you have to do, the what are you saying yes to, what are you saying no to, involves taming your advice monster. So three different advice monsters, tell it, save it, and control it. Tell it's convinced you that, your job is to have all the answers to all the things all the time. If you don't have all the answers, you're failing yourself and you're failing others. Save it is a little quieter than tell it, but it's convinced you that your job is to rescue everybody. It's like the rescuer in the drama triangle. It's like you're responsible to make sure nobody ever struggles, stumbles, falls, sweats, finds it difficult. Your job is to protect everybody at all times, regardless of the cost. And the third Advice monster is control it. So control it is like your job is to never give up control. Keep your hands on the wheel. Don't let anybody lean in, but manage the whole process, the whole thing from start through the middle to the finish. Be the person who is always in control. And all three of those are impossible. They're impossible to, you can't have all the answers. You can't save all the people. You can't stay in control. But the advice monster is like, whispering in your ear it's like if you don't you're screwed <laughs> it's like a disaster <laughs> disaster awaits you and it's part of what makes you want to leap in with the answers and the solutions and telling people what to do it's like one or more of those advice monsters is pushing your buttons but the the, the profound price that's being paid when that happens is that when the advice monster has control of the conversation you're fundamentally saying to that other person, you're just not good enough. You're not smart enough, fast enough, experienced enough, old enough, young enough, cool enough, moral enough, senior enough, 
to to take responsibility here. So I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to protect you from yourself. I'm going to take control and keep you disempowered, keep you less human. That's brilliant. Michael, it reminds me, last week's show was with David L. Um, L. David Marquet, the, the book Turn the Ship Around. I don't know if you've read I it. Do, but yeah. I do, yeah. Sure. Essentially, essentially, he's put what you've talked about here to, to life, you know, to brought it to life where yeah. he handed over power to the people on the ship, turned the boat around within a year, became from, from worst yeah. to first. Amazing story that resonates so much when you read your book. It's an amazing story and it has a... a it's, I think it's, it's, it can be easy or lazy for people to kind of dismiss books from the mil ex-military people because <laughs> they're like, yeah, but you're, you're, you're in a uniform. Like literally you've got three bars on your epaulets there and you have a hat. Like it's, it's a different thing. But the, the foundational insight is put responsibility where it best belongs. And you know, my understanding of that book and his work is he's like, I'm going to push responsibility to make the decision, make the call to the appropriate level in the ship so that people take that on, grow their accountability, grow their responsibility, grow their capacity. And it stops everything coming up the, the, the chain of command so that you've got some senior or semi-senior person making some decision that should be made you know, by somebody who is in a whole different part of the boat. Beautiful, man. Now, now nobody needs to go and listen back to that episode. Thanks for ruining it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and for those of you who are listening and, and haven't uh, seen, so uh, Michael changed from a tell it to save it to control it suit uh, here on, on YouTube uh, where we're, we're recording exactly, on video. Exactly. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very uncomfortable thing with pink feathers at the moment. So it's like, if you're not seeing this on YouTube, you're really missing something spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe for further dress dress up shows um okay move, moving on man because you say I, I will say this you know when i was at law school in australia as in my final year for the law review which is you know like a, a, a humorous show i actually participated in a skit called synchronized nude male modeling so whatever i'm wearing right now on youtube at least it's not synchronized nude male modeling which is a whole nother level of youtube and it's it's how you finish this book as well so uh just to show i got i got all the way to the end man right, and uh, i can't i can't unsee what my imagination yeah. saw but uh m moving on to uh next you say coming at the challenge here takes self-direction and practice self-reflection and practice and you break down this process into four steps i'd love if you share an overview of one who let the dogs out two confessions three prizes and punishment and four future you ftw yeah, I'll be quick about this because this is quite a, 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 it's a process and, you know, it could take an hour to explain and we don't have an hour. But um, who let the dogs out is merely to say, look, step number one is like figure out who gets your advice monster going. Like be really specific about it. You probably got a guess as to which of the advice monsters in a kind of general generic sense is, is the one that you're most familiar with, which is great. But to tame it, it almost never works just to go, I'm going to give less advice or I'm going to be curious longer or I'm going to be more coach-like. It's like, no, it's like Aiden. And it's Aiden when Aiden's in that weekly meeting with me. He drives me nuts and my talent advice monster really comes out. So there's the first step. It's like pick it. 
pick the pick the person, pick the context. Confessioning is going, so what do you do? You know, what are your behaviors? What does it actually look like? You know, take it from the generic behaviors of tell it, save it, and control it, and notice your specific, your personal variations on those uh, different behaviors. Step number three is the prizes and punishments. I love this as a kind of essential model, which is like every choice you make has prizes and punishments, advantages and disadvantages, benefits and a price you pay. So when you look at your behavior in that context, you know, under the, the confessions, when you look at your behavior, what are the prizes? What are the punishments? What do you get from that? And what's the price being paid by you and by them and by the, the people around you for this dysfunctional behavior? You've got to you've got to kind of weigh that up. And in fact, unless you get to a place where you go, you know, honestly, the punishments outweigh the prizes. The price being paid is greater than the comfort and security and whatever that I might feel from this behavior. It's hard to change. And then future you for the winners when you imagine what would it be like if I was that person who isn't run by the advice monster? What does that look like? What does that sound like? And kind of what are the prizes and punishments there? What are the advantages and what's at risk by being that future you version? We've established at this stage curiosity is absolutely core. We know that from innovation. Regular listeners of this show know how important that is. But how do we stay curious for longer? Well, it's simple and it's difficult. <laughs> you know, the simple answer is like, ask some more questions, dummy. Just do that. So the hard work is recognizing your advice monster and taming your advice monster. It kind of lays foundational behavior shifts that allow you then to start going, okay, so now how do I build a, a habit, a habit of curiosity? So I think habits can be extremely powerful as a way of, of building new behaviors. They're not always to be an end-all. They're kind of like you have to do some of that more deeper work sometimes to kind of get yourself to a place to build a habit. But once you're there, then um, I'm a big fan of this kind of habit building, and I use something called the new habit formula. So the new habit formula is just my articulation of other people's work. Um, well, my, my twist on it, I guess. You know, B.J. Fogg, his, his book Tiny Habits is terrific. Um, James Clear is Atomic Habits is the kind of uh, operationalization of Charles Duhigg's work, which is The Power of Habits. Leo Babauta, Zen Habits is a terrific kind of resource as well, a, a blog post and the like. New habit formula is when this happens instead of I will. When this happens, you describe the context, the moment of, you know, you, you normally give advice. Instead of, you kind of like, oh, here's where I would jump in and tell them what to do, give them answers, ask rhetorical questions that sound like I'm asking questions, but are in fact just telling them what to do. And then I will is to ask a good question. So I have learned through experience and through study that it's like it's hard to change everything all at once. So I go, look, if you want to stay more curious, pick a question and practice it. You know, start using it once a day or twice a day or five times a day. So which question do you pick? Well, look, in the Coaching Habit book, I talk about seven. 
there are lots of good questions out there, but these seven feel like they have a universality and a reach that covers a lot of situations. So if I was to pick my favorite question to do with innovation, it would be the focus question. The focus question is this. What's the real challenge here for you? What's the real challenge here for you? What I like about it is it says explicitly, we're going to figure out what's the hard thing and the important thing here. And the way it's constructed really matters. Because you could just ask, what's the challenge here? And that's not a terrible question, but it will often get a kind of repeat of what people's initial state problem statement is. You know, somebody comes to you and goes, we need a Sara Lee double-layer chocolate cake. And you go, so what's the challenge here? And you're like, we don't have a Sara Lee double-layer chocolate cake. I'm like, okay, it feels like we're getting a little circular here. Um, when you go, but what's the real challenge here? That question gets elevated. It says to them, look, there's a bunch of things that are hard about this, this situation, this context that you're describing. What do you think the real challenge is? And it's saying to them, figure this, prioritize, figure this out. Get, wrestle with it a little longer so that you get to the, the most difficult thing. But the question becomes even more powerful when you add for you to it. You go, what's the real challenge here for you? And part of the, I think, power of that, the brilliance of that, is it takes the spotlight from the problem to the person solving the problem. So... Let's, let's make it live. Aiden, what's, that, what's, what's on your mind? Give me something that you're wrestling with at the moment. I am wrestling with uh, how to promote the new course I have, which goes in my book. Perfect. Brilliant. So how do I promote the new course that supports the book? So what's the and, – and so just so everybody who's listening and watching knows, so I am a book author who's written courses and stuff to promote books. So there's one part of my brain that immediately goes, ha ha, <laughs> advice monster moment. Tell him stuff. I can see him in the room. He's behind you. Yeah, you've got, you've got stuff to share here. You, you've got scars. You've got stories. You've got successes. You've got failures. I, I could easily now monologue for about 45 minutes just letting Aiden see just how brilliant I am. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask him a question instead. I'm going to go, hey, Aiden. So, okay, courses promoting the book. What's the real challenge here for you? Reaching customers. What else? What is it else is a challenge about all of this for you? Uh, knowing how to do it. Perfect. Okay. And if I was to push you to one other thing that might not be about reaching the customers, but yeah. maybe another challenge around it, what else is hard about this for you? Um. That that awkward silence, which everybody listening in could feel, and I could feel it too, is perfect because you could kind of see the little smoke coming out of Aiden's ears and the spark <laughs> on his brain. He's like, I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm not sure that there's anything else there. I'm like, that's, that's fine. But if I was to say, okay, so it's, it's general reach, it's identifying who your real customers are, and it's knowing where to start. 
as kind of the three, kind of my words around the three challenges you had. If you had to pick just one of those as kind of like the the hard thing to focus on, which one would you pick? The the customer one. The... Got it. So let me ask you, let's pick that. Let me ask you this. What's the real challenge there for you? Um, just scale. I mean, trying to trying to reach those people and, and actually messaging the the message right to meet their needs. So I may have a language that makes sense to me that might not make sense to them. Got it. So finding the right language that will actually strike a chord with them. What else is a challenge about reaching your core customers? Well, try, trying to know you have different, as you know, different uh, buyers with different hats on within the organization. It's not necessarily an L&D person or a HR yeah. person. It can be a CEO or a team leader. So it could be identifying kind of different variations on what the key customer is. Because it's like, am I pitching to a CEO? Am I pitching to a team leader? Am I pitching to a head of learning and development? Exactly. So it, it might be ident even identifying which of those is actually your key customer. Yeah. So you've got, number one, trying to figure out actually who is your key customer because it sounds still a bit like could be one thing or the other. You don't really know yet. Secondly, how do you find the language to really strike a chord with them? What else? What else is hard about this for you? Um, trying to remain patient <laughs> with it all. Nice. Beautiful. So for everybody who's listening in, and Aiden's like, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, this is meant to be, I'm, I'm trying to interview you, and now you're making me sweat. For those people live. listening for, and not watching me, I'm cool as a cool cucumber here. I'm so cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, here's, but here's, I mean, let me ask you this, Aiden. We've, just, we've done just like two minutes coaching, two kind of rounds of the same question, which is like, what's the real challenge here for you? What, if anything, has been already helpful for you in this? Well, it's good. It's it's getting to the real problem, and it's almost like you've um, put a block of wood or, or stone, and we've excavated, we've we've sculpted away to see. Well, what's actually, what are we talking about here? That's been useful. I feel like we could keep hammering this for a bit, but it, if I'm just making it up and I'm playing back what I'm hearing, here's what I would guess is at the heart of this, which is like, I've written a book, I've written a program. And they're, they're both excellent, and I'm excited about them. It's hard to do the marketing. Marketing is hard. It's, it's, you've got to find people. You've got to get their attention. You've got to get them to give you some time. You've got to get them to give you some money. All of that is hard. And if I had to put money on it, I'd go, look, writing a book and writing a course for Aiden is easy change. That doesn't mean it's not difficult to get the stuff done because it's a slog, but it's doable. I've got a process. I would bet that marketing is closer to hard change. So it's like there's a, there's a resistance there. And I'd be like, how do we get to the heart of it, which is like, number one, how do you identify your avatar of your key customer? Because because in the moment you're like, uh, how do I write copy for them? How do I find their pain points? If people buy medicine, how do I find what the problem is so I can offer them the medicine? But if you're trying to pitch, is it a CEO of a small company? Is it a head of an LOD of a large company? Is it a team member from any company? They're three different, completely different types of people with different pain, different needs. So how do you tackle that? 
So that's my guess. Now, what's interesting about that, if this is true, this is a hypothesis, obviously, I'm like, if I'd started to give Aiden my opinion on courses from the first, the, the top conversation, I'd be giving him a whole lot of gumph about stuff he doesn't even care about because he's kind of got it. But now we're down to something that's interesting, which is like, what does it mean to be a, a brilliant marketer and cut through the noise in corporate L&D sales? And that's a whole different hard thing. Beautiful. Uh, and, uh, and you're right, uh, being, <laughs> the, being the recipient, because <laughs> you talked about this and, I, and I, I did it, which you talk about this both in the advice trap and the coaching habit is, I need to, if, if you were my coach, I need to actually tell you what I'm liable to do. I need to confess to you, look, I'm, I'm liable to bring it in a totally different way to avoid getting deeper and avoid the awkward silences. And I tell you that and you go, when I do that, help me. Yeah. You know, I, I thought that was really, really valuable to, to do. And, and, uh, you know, I, and, and actually you've exposed one of the reasons I don't like doing the marketing is because I, you know, even on this show, I, I don't tend to, it's about the guest, man, you know, and I don't, I want it to be about the guest and not about me. And the same when I write on LinkedIn or whatever, I want to make it uh, pure. So, you know, you, you try to avoid keeping the marketing message away. So that's, a, that's a challenge for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I think there's something interesting about digging into that because, um, Yeah, it's just it's just a rich vein of conversation, right? Which is like, hey, what for the sake of why do you market? Yeah, is there a way of marketing in a way that doesn't feel like it's you self-promoting? Yeah, how do you reframe it in a way of this marketing is an act of service? Like, how can you help people if that nobody knows who you are? Yeah. Nice man. It's a you got me thinking. Yeah, yeah, you got <laughs> me thinking. Well, let's let's bring it back. There's yeah, one last so, thing. We we only have one. Yeah. And, and I thought this was so useful. And there was, by the way, for everyone listening and watching, there is so much in this book. It's very succinct. You'll read it in, you'd read it in a day if you wanted to. I, I read it over a few days, but I let it seep in and let it marinate. And it was beautiful. But I loved when you talked about the acronym you in, introduced in the coaching habit, because it was very useful to understand tribes, why we reject others and a whole lot of other things, why fear is difficult. And it's the acronym Tira or Terra. And yeah. I'd love for you to share that as a as a kind of a parting sure. message. So I think of this as the the neuroscience of engagement. And I think it's helpful if you're uh, in a coach-like conversation or any conversation with somebody, what you're going to understand is that your conversation can be amazingly helpful for people. And part of their brain is going, I'm trying to opt out of this conversation as fast as I can. It's just the way we're wired. So the brain is wired five times a second to scan its environment and go, is it safe here or is it dangerous? Safe or dangerous? Safe or dangerous? It is a survival thing because brain's number one job is to keep you alive so you can procreate so that your DNA continues down the generation. So that's what it's doing five times a second. Even as you listen to this or watch the YouTube or whatever, the brain's going safe or dangerous, safe or dangerous, safe or dangerous. So the four factors, tribe, expectation, rank, and autonomy, T-E-R-A or terror. Tribe, the brain is going, are you with me or are you against me? With me or against me? Expectation is, do I know what's about to happen or do I not know? 
Can I see a little bit into the future or not at all? Rank is, am I more or less important than you? And autonomy is, are you making all the choices or do I have some say in this? And the more you can set up an experience, whether that's a one-to-one coaching conversation or a, a learning and development uh, experience or an innovation brainstorm, whatever it might be, that is about increases the terror quotient. So there's more tribe, more unbalanced, more tribe expectation, rank and autonomy. Then the more likely you are to keep people engaged longer. You know, it's why when I run a program, it's so interactive because whilst I can fill up an hour or two hours of me monologuing, I know that it is a fundamentally disengaging experience because it reduces tribe. It probably doesn't reduce expectation because everyone's like, he's just going to keep talking forever. It reduces rank because I'm saying, look, I'm smarter and better than you are, so listen to me. And it reduces autonomy. It's like, you've got no choice. Listen to me. So the brain is going, all right, <laughs> I'm done here. And even though you've got people kind of eyes glazed over and nodding, they're, they're opting out. <laughs> In anything I do when I'm, when I'm facilitating it, whether it's virtual or live, I'm like, if people aren't interacting in some way every seven minutes, I'm going to lose them because of terror. So the terror quotient, which I talk about in the coaching habit, and then I go into more detail in the advice trap, um, is full of little tactics that can make meetings, conversations, one-to-ones, training sessions, conferences, anything better because there's a terror quotient to it. Yeah, I thought I found that so useful, Michael. And uh, I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, the as uncomfortable as it was, the uncomfortable climate <laughs> uh, at mm-hmm. times. But uh, you talk about this, and thank you for. I mean, again, you've done it here, where you've exemplified your own work, your own coaching by living it. So I appreciate that. I, I have, okay. um, I have a quote that I pulled from the book as a parting message, and I'm, I'm going to share that as my final sign off. But I'd love you to finish today's show and you to sign off. So I'll let you think about that. But before I, I do quote that. Where can people find out more about you? I signed up for the Year of Brilliantly, uh, Year Brilliant. of Living Brilliantly course. I think it's fantastic it's for everyone listening it, and watching it. It includes many of the previous authors we've had on, on the show. Uh, Whitney Johnson's on there, for example, and yeah. just brilliant people. And it's really highly worthwhile. I let Michael maybe describe that. And sure. where can people find you? So look, if you happen to be a corporate L&D person and you've decided not to invest in Aiden's course, then <laughs> but you're like, I want something around he, coaching. Because he doesn't know how to articulate it to you. <laughs> exactly. He's still trying to figure out whether he wants to talk to you or not. Um, boxofcrayons.com is the kind of the corporate enterprise. We do learning and development, help organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led. If you're an individual and you're like, I like my call and I'd like to enhance my learning and my growth, mbs.works is the website. And as Aiden says, one of the key things there is the year of living brilliantly. 52 brilliant teachers, a video every week for a year, absolutely free. And basically, I asked my 52 favorite brilliant people and said, shoot a two to six minute video that will rock my world. And you have, you know, all sorts of really smart, really cool people doing their thing. So I, I hope you'll sign up there. It'll be fun. Brilliant, Michael. I, I'm going to sign off with this brilliant quote that, that I love from the book. And uh, it's right at the end. And it goes as follows. 
the invitation in this book is to move to the edge of who you are now. Take a breath and step out towards future you. It's the opportunity to change the way you lead so you can change your team and your organization and perhaps most importantly, yourself. Build your coaching habit, avoid the advice trap and tame your advice monster. That's how I'm going to finish off, Michael. What about you? How would you like to close today's show? Well, first of all, I would thank anybody who has stuck around this conversation long <laughs> enough to hear this. So thanks for being here. I think I'd finish up asking you a question, which is what was most useful or most valuable for you from this show? If you can only pick one thing, because we and I covered a lot, you're not going to remember all of it. So make a choice now about what you will remember. If you had to pick the one thing that felt most useful or most valuable for you, capture that, write it down, make a note of it in some way so that you're set to actually bring it into your life and start making use of it. Brilliant. Author of The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious and Change the Way You Lead Forever, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me along.